answer is coming. You're listening to The Watchers of Westeros. I am the king! A Game of Thrones podcast. When you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. Fire cannot kill a dragon. Lion doesn't concern himself with the opinions of a sheep. I've also heard the phrase, a Lannister always pays his debt. For the night is dark and full of terror. What good is power if you cannot protect the ones you love? We can avenge them. Mid-season slump? What mid-season slump? Who said anything about that? What just happened? <laughs> you can tell You can tell it's a huge episode because we're actually recording on time. We're not recording this Sunday. Uh, the next episode is airing. But wow, what an episode. We'll be getting into all of that here. Talking about, of course, the eighth episode of season five of Game of Thrones, Hard Home. And oh, man. Everything changes. Like, everything changes with this episode. There's everything we have been building up to until this point, not just in the North, but everything else. It changes everything. It really, really does. This is the real war. This is the first, you know, the the first episode was called The Wars to Come. This right here, this is the real war that we have been uh, building up to for so many seasons. And it changes. It changes everything. And we, we will be getting into that here tonight on the Watchers of Westeros, you are in the right place if you're looking for some game, some good old-fashioned Game of Thrones talk. Uh, introductions are in order if you're new to the program, and hopefully we have some new listeners who are all excited about that episode. Really, I, I think we can just say it right now. The best episode of Season 5 thus far. Uh, but, so, but if you're new to the show, welcome. My name is Dominic, and joining me, as he always does, is, is my good friend and award-winning co-host, Kieran. Kieran, how are you this evening? Oh, you're far too kind, Dominic, with your <laughs> uh, your acclamation of me having uh, an award-winning title. No, um, for, the, for just to briefly put that into context, um, as part of Expression FM, which is the student society I'm part of a committee on, we did actually win for the X Media Awards yesterday, which was uh, an award ceremony based around the different media institutions of Exeter University. Uh, we, or me personally, along with a number of members of Expression Sport Team, won the Boxing Varsity Award for best coverage. So we are very delighted to obviously receive that award, and as well to everyone who uh, dedicated such hard work and effort towards that particular event. But me and Dominic now are going to dedicate our own time and effort to make this podcast as good as we can do. And what an episode, as you just said, Dominic, to really begin to probe I, I think hard home as you said is certainly up there with the best of not just this season but I, I generally think the series as a whole i a lot of groundbreaking stuff happens here but we'll get into more depth a little bit later in the episode yeah well let's just let's jump into it with just initial impressions of this episode i think we've i think it's it's clear to say or safe to say off the bat we both loved this episode and uh, and like I said, I think it does change everything. But I'll throw it back over to you for your initial impressions of Hard Home. 
as I alluded to earlier, I think this is, is one of the best episodes of Game of Thrones. As you said, we we get to see a wide range of story arcs really come to a head and the landscape of Game of Thrones is beginning to alter. And what I did like in this episode is that although we did consider a wide variety of storylines, we still managed to fit in a good half an hour focused on Jon Snow Mm -hmm. and the Wildlings and the White Walkers. And I think one of the major issues for a lot of people going into this season was we, we keep alluding to the White Walker threat, but it hasn't been tangibly felt thus far. Would you not agree with that? Oh, yeah. In, in, in the sense that we've seen one or two of them, but nothing on this scale and nothing of this devastation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've seen the army, we've seen them doing evil things, but we never, you're right, we've, we've never seen, I mean, just this this bloodbath, essentially, of all of those wildlings going up against all of those uh, those White Walkers and so many that, that just that last shot, the last shots of the episode just show the devastation of the hard of hard home of the the wildling ports or whatever whatever that is and there's just this massive devastation all of these dead bodies and then as the the knight's king there just claps or you know he he rises all of these these corpses up onto his army and and you see it in in Jon Snow's face that this really does it, it changes everything because this is this is the real threat right you know we've spent four and a half seasons on political movering maneuverings on on all kinds of backstabbing and, and and underground deals and all kinds of really interesting stuff and now we're seeing why we need a strong ruler in westeros you know this is the first time we're really seeing it there can't be this power vacuum that has existed throughout this season I mean, this season there really has been a power vacuum after the death of Tywin Lannister, and and even even going back, you know, even the death of Robert Baratheon that left a bit of a vacuum that was never quite filled, and now we're seeing why it needs to be filled. We're seeing why we need someone, whether that's Roose Bolton or not Roose Bolton, <laughs> hopefully not him, whether it's a uh, Stannis Baratheon or, or or Daenerys Targaryen or or somebody to stand up and you know, face down this threat, the real threat. And, uh, and so it, it will change. I think it, it's a, it changes the landscape and, and it's up to someone like Jon Snow. It's up to the survivors of this event to, you know, convey to the people down South, how serious an event this was, because as we saw it going all the way back to season one, the people down south don't really take the Night's Watch all that seriously. You know, they all say, oh, there's great honor in, join- in joining the Night's Watch. But when Tyrion was there, you know, he, he really didn't think much of them. You know, he said, you know, I have great respect for you, but, you know, I, I don't believe in, in White Walkers or Giants or, or any of the other threats. And, well, as we now know, those things are all real. It's not just the Wildlings. And from that from that standpoint alone... 
like I said, this is a game changing episode. It, it really changes everything. Uh, and, uh, you know, we learn a lot of new things and we really start to see more and more clues as to the importance of why Danny is, needs to come to Westeros. You know, in this episode, Tyrion presents to her the idea of you don't need to go to Westeros. Stay in the East. Stay where it's safe, essentially, and and do all sorts of good here. But we now know that, and, and you know, when he presents that, it, there's sort of like a, yeah, why does she really want to go to Westeros other than, you know, to reclaim her birthright, yada, 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 all that pompous stuff that, you know, Stannis is all into, that Ned Stark was into, that everybody seems to be into. But there's no real reason that she needs to be there until now. You know, we know that one of the weaknesses of White Walkers is fire. But we also now know that Valyrian steel, which, and, you know, Danny is from, is, is, you know, is, her heritage is old Valyria. And uh, dragonglass are the things that seem to be able to take down uh, take down White Walkers, and and Danny has dragons who breathe fire, and presumably dragon glass means something that has to do with dragons. I don't. We, not, is, have we ever found out what dragon glass is specifically? Not entirely. We found out where one can harvest it from, which is Dragonstone. Mm. Um, but we and we know that there is significance attached to the weapon because of the fact it can. Killer White Walker. Yeah. But as you said, in terms of the history behind it and why Dragonglass is able to be so effective as a weapon against the White Walkers, it's, it's still quite ambiguous. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so, yeah, all of this basically comes back to the point that somebody now needs to unite all of the various noble families to come together to fight this because we saw in this episode, right? Jon Snow goes there with, with Tormund Giants Bane and they go to try and convince the wildlings to come south and a bunch of them agree, but a bunch don't. The, the fens don't agree, which leads to the immortal line. I fucking hate fens. Um, and, and so it's always the fens. Yeah, it's always the fens. Um, but as soon as the White Walkers attacked, all of the history that they were talking about in that meeting was forgotten. They had that common enemy. And that is, you know, we've talked this season a lot about how the end of this series seems to be heading towards a place where all of the younger generations will be the ones to team up. It'll be Jon Snow and, and, and Daenerys Targaryen, perhaps Sansa, Sno- Sansa Stark, uh, all sorts of people like that. Um, Princess Shireen, all these, these characters are the ones that will need to come together. And now we know why. <laughs> and now we know what could force them to come together. So now I, I, I've sort of rambled on there for a few minutes about, you know, what I think. But now I'll, I want to get your take. What do you think is the significance of, of this battle? How it, Am I overstating it? Do you think I'm, I'm overstating it a little bit? Or do you agree that this is a huge pivotal turning point in the show i think it is a huge turning point in the show um particularly after watching the video entitled inside the episode which is on the game of thrones youtube channel 
and um, David Benoff and, and, and D.B. Vise, um, they talk about the fact that this scene was aired as new to both book readers and TV watchers alike. So this is this is stuff that we've never seen or has ever been released before, mm-hmm. which in itself is quite significant that we focus in on this particular moment. As we as I said, the fact that they have taken the time of around uh, close to half the episode on that storyline demonstrates the importance of this battle. Well, it's not, I wouldn't even call it a battle, to be honest, Dominic. I think the term massacre yeah. would be more apt because there's no real battle here. The Ice Watch and, and Wildlings, they're fleeing. They managed to escape. Some of them managed to escape. Most of them die um, and then become reanimated as whites. Um, and so I, I, I do think that we learn a lot from this fight. Um, uh, the main things that I'll, I believe we've learned from this fight, and then I'll, I'll throw it over to you for your own interpretation. The main things I think we've learned from this fight is number one, the, the obvious one, is the Valyrian sword. That can be used as a weapon to kill White Walkers. That's a big revelation. Um, or at least something that has maybe, maybe will have been mentioned before, but not highlighted in such a manner, and we haven't seen it in practice until now. And so we see Jon Snow has a Valyrian sword. Yep. Brienne of Tarth has a Valyrian sword. Um, and I'm trying to I think guess we, somebody we else can who assume, must have. We can assume Tommen has one because Joffrey had the other one because Ned had had that big one that he used to chop off the guy's head. You know, the guy who tried to, to warn them yes. in the first episode about that this was coming. And, of course, wow, they chopped off his head. Yeah. <laughs> Dramatic irony there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but Ned had that sword, and then Tywin melted it down, and he gave one to Jamie, and Jamie then gave it to Brienne. And the other one was given to Joffrey. And the last time we saw it was when was with Joffrey's corpse. So we can either assume that it is, it is A, still with Joffrey's corpse, or B, it was passed on to the next king, which would be Tommen. So there's we know of three basically right now. So yeah, that'll 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 help, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> this is why we need well, dragons. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's that's exactly the reason. And and Brienne of Tarth, though, I I, I have a little theory about her. Ooh, I'll, let's hear. I'll it. come on to later. Oh, okay. I, I think it's more relevant to Sansa's. Fair enough. Part in this episode, um, but the the second significant thing that we find out about is the concept of a White Walker hierarchy. Mm. Now, it was alluded very briefly in one of the episodes of season four when we saw one of the White Walkers taking the child yes. from Craster's keep and and putting it in their I don't know, shrine, temple, whatever you want to call it, um, as the Night Walker. Oh, what's his name? What, the, the leader of the Night... Oh, uh, the, the leader the, the of Night's King. Night's the Night's King, that's it. See, yeah, Night's Watch, Night's King, it's all very confusing. <laughs> I kind of just be White Walker King, but anyway. Yeah. Um, so uh, the Night's King, we see him transforming the baby from um, a human to a White Walker or a White, whatever you want to call it. Um, 
And so, you know, we see this idea really come into principle. And you talk about the idea, as you said, Dominic, of the White Walkers representing the evil in this show. And it, it, it's quite symbolic with the religious connotations there of the four horsemen yeah. on top of the cliff. That obviously four horsemen of the apocalypse immediately came to mind there. I'm sure you had oh, similar yeah. thoughts as well. And it's just so foreboding and ominous of what's to come. And... I, I, what I, but I, I do quite like the idea that there is some sort of hierarchy here, that there's there's more to the White Walkers than meets the eye. They're not necessarily just these rambling, brainless, empty-headed monsters who blindly attack. Um, that, that there's an agenda. There's motivation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that these characters, um, these White Walkers, the, the leaders, the council, they actually have... Um, reason and thought that they're able to actually conjure up. So I think that's going to be interesting to consider. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also want to hit on a final point before I throw it over to you. It's quite long-winded, but yeah, we talk about the significance of this battle here. Yeah. Um, when you mention that fire can kill the White Walkers, it, I think we learn here in this episode that's not necessarily the case. That the Whites, who are the um, the individuals that, who are resurrected by right. the Knights. Uh, by the way, oh, the Night King, the yeah. Night King, and the White Walkers—they can be. But that White Walker, which obviously walked through the flames and had that massive spear, mm. they seem to be impregnable to fire. So obviously, we've got a massive army of whites. So to distinguish between whites and White Walkers, as I said, whites were more of the zombies. The White Walkers—they're more distinctive, quite visually. They've got these white face. It's quite obvious. So. In my mind, I think that what can kill White Walkers, or at least what we've seen here, are is, is Valyrian steel and dragon glass, but not fire. Um, mm. But fire can be used to kill Whites. Does do you see where I'm yeah. coming from? Oh, yeah, that, absolutely. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, the other thing that's that's interesting about this, and I'm glad you brought up the whole thing about the the hierarchy of of the of the white walkers and the whites and, and all that and, and the four horsemen and the knight's king and because it, it's good to see that these are not just some faceless threat some bland enemy because it would i i worry that it would cheapen the story that if we had you know we've spent five like i said four and a half seasons and we will continue to spend a lot of time i'm sure as the as this series and the next uh c- continue on the politics of Westeros on, uh, you know, on all the machinations and and all that. And while we need something that will ultimately unite them, it it would almost seem a a bit of a disservice to everything we had seen before if it was just some faceless threat. And so if we start to get to see more of of the White Walkers and and they get established as a presence, um, perhaps more, more on par with, some of the some of the even some of the noble houses we've already seen then it would uh it i think it would elevate them in a in a really interesting way so that they're not just zombies who are attacking and the other thing that's really interesting about uh what you brought up about the, uh, or about the idea that there is this uh this hierarchy is well what is their goal obviously they they want to turn as many people into ice zombies as possible, you know, 
But like, is is there a bigger goal? Obviously, the this attack, the this attack, this massacre at Hardhome seemed to have been about sending a message that that they are there, that they are a threat. But what is their ultimate goal? Is it just like world domination, or or is that something? that's still yet to be revealed that there's something more to them. And I, I really hope there is. I don't know. What do you think? I think that at the moment it's still far too ambiguous and unclear to us as audience members, what the rationale behind the white walkers attacks lies in. What, 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 you know, what is the motivation is, is a very good question. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not sure that, we can understand what the motivation is unless perhaps it's written in a history textbook or uh, <laughs> no, in, in, in the sense that it, from what we've learned about White Walkers is, you know, Stannis Baratheon, when he spoke to Samuel Tarly this season, keep reading Samuel Tarly research, need to look up about what's happened in the past and whether there's any clues as to how the White Walkers were dealt with in the past or whether they were even, well, you know, I say, were they even dealt with? Well, they must have been because otherwise the whole of civilization would just be white walkers at this day. So there must have been some way in which this threat and menace was curbed. How is still unclear? I, you know, how to deal with the threat, but also what the rationale is behind the white walkers' attacks. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, do you have any... Sp- I don't... I can't really uh, yeah, comprehend I- at this stage <laughs> what their motivation is. I, I think you're about to echo a similar yeah, sentiment. Yeah, I, I, I think we need to spend more time with them and, and uh, perhaps a character that we already know needs to spend some time with them because that's that's how we came to really understand the wildlings, I think. Because for a while, the the wildlings were kind of like that. They were this sort of threat that was out there, and, and but we they were, they were just kind of evil. They were the bad guys. And then Jon Snow spent all this time with Mance Raider, and now we... The, the, and the wildlings... You know, even the most brutal and most horrible of them have have really been humanized this season into, you know, this understanding, or at least some of them do, that there's this greater, um, there's a greater thing going on here than just crows versus wildlings. And, uh, and, and that's what I, that's what I see going on here, uh, is that we need somebody to go in and, and spend some time with, with the White Walkers and, I, I don't know. I feel like having it be Jon Snow would be a bit too, you know, we, we've, we've gone down that road before. Jon needs to do something else. Maybe it could be like Bran. I mean, we haven't seen Bran at all this season. Who knows what he's doing? Maybe he could, maybe Bran could, could infiltrate one of the White Walkers, you know, using his, um, his warging. And that's how we could learn something like that's That's just wild out there speculation. I have no idea, but I'm just trying to think of ways that we could infiltrate the, the White Walkers because Again, unlike the wildlings, which are, you know, while they were the quote unquote villains for a while, they were still humans who spoke and, and interact, interacted more or less normally and, and all that. Whereas the White Walkers are, they're zombies. I mean, there's, there's no going in and having a sit down, having a chat with some zombies. And, uh, so it, it'll be interesting to see how they, how they play this out over, over future seasons. But, uh, Again, this again, game changing stuff. It really, really is, and and a really cool battle, really wonderfully choreographed and and put together, and and everything about it was well done. 
I can't say oh, enough that, good things. The action sequences were on par with what you see in cinema. It was, oh, yeah. It was cinematic brilliant. is the is the apt term to use for that, I think. As you've said, the choreography of the of the battle or the massacre, whatever you want to term it, was incredible. Definitely the best action sequences we've seen on Game of Thrones. Um, and two little tidbits I also wanted to point out. As a Star Wars fan, I thought it was quite <laughs> interesting to see that the Night King resembled very closely a Darth Maul <laughs> silhouette, in my mind, yep. with the little yep. horns and the face. I, but did, did you think of something yeah, similar, well, Dominic? I, I, I saw him there, and I'm like, at last we'll reveal ourselves to Night's Watch. At last we'll have revenge. <laughs> well, that would be a twist, wouldn't it? If that was the voice that was also used. Yeah, and a, then I was also... Sam Whitworth doing the voice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I wonder what Sam Witt was other projects were entailed. But yeah. there you go. <laughs> he kept it close to his chest. Yeah. Um, and I was also very concerned at one point that that giant was going to become a White Walker as well. Because oh, yeah. all of those White Walkers kept jumping on his back. And when the giant then, um, stepped into the water, I thought for a moment that he was going to go. And then, you know, Jon Snow and his crew would have been in big trouble. Oh, yeah. But... Um, what, what what would you say to the possibility, Dominic, if in the future the giant was to go on the White Walkers team? Uh, Not good news. I, yeah, that that would be that would be something to see, and I you know I, I wouldn't be surprised if we did see that at some point. We know there are other giants. That one guy can't be the only one, and so I wouldn't be surprised if if another giant somewhere beyond the wall was taken down by some White Walkers and. That'll be something to see. That'll be something to see. But yeah, well, let, let's move on from the battle, massacre, what have you, to some quieter scenes, some calmer scenes at Castle Black at the Wall. And I have to tell you, I'm really starting to worry about this Ollie kid. And I'm worried that he's going to go one of two ways and both are bad. <laughs> I really have to say, I... You know, he has this great conversation with Sam where Sam is, is, is you know, trying to make him understand much in the same way that, that, that John tried to a little bit earlier this season, although Sam, I think, makes a better case for it, um, trying to make him understand what John is doing. And it's left really ambiguous. You could read that scene both ways where he either rejects what Sam tells him or... Um, accepts what sam tells him and both of those i think have bad outcomes for this kid because i, I think that if he accept, accepts what sam tells him then he will you know welcome john back and something will go wrong and he will be killed if he rejected what sam told him then i think he is going to go bad he or at the very least stop siding with John and start siding with first stranger Alistair Thorne on most issues. Uh what was your take on on the Ollie Sam scene? Maury for John Snow <laughs> once again. When this Ollie kid shows up on screen, I uh, anxiety suddenly certainly peaks within me because Game of Thrones as, as a TV show is—it's is, not a show which is going to focus in on a particular character and 
have no real reason to do so whatsoever. I, you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't get a payoff for it. I mean, we we spend so many time, so much time, a wide range of characters to actually consider that we can't just stop necessarily willy nilly at um, one particular individual for the sake of it. So I think that we continue continuously observe Ollie's facial reactions and expressions towards situations. I think this is the first scene that we actually get to hear Holly, Ollie's perspective out in the open. Mm-hmm. So rather than just looking at the facial expressions, there's actually a voice and, um, that comes with it. So we're able to hear what it is, his, his, you know, what are his grievances, which were relatively obvious because his home was decimated by the wildlings yeah. I mean, the main issue at the moment to resolve is going to be what happens when john and the group return yeah um, you've you seen know, the, seen they, the tra- going... trailer for for next week mm. eee. Eee. It does not look good and i don't know what you know whether ollie would have a play have a part to play in that now or in the future but I, 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 what's your What's your interpretation? See, my interpretation is that Ollie rejected really what Sam said. Yeah, I I think so. I I think he did reject. I I think he is he's going bad. He's 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 slipping to the dark side, uh, which is unfortunate. But you know that's what people do. I mean, he has he has reason to not want Jon Snow to go through with this. He watched his parents be butchered in front of him by the wildlings. His his viewpoint on this is completely understandable. He hasn't experienced the same stuff that John and Sam has have. He hasn't seen the White Walkers. He doesn't know. For all the White Walkers are to him what they what they were to Ned Stark a story, nothing more. They've been gone for thousands of years. Um, why would they be back now? And, and so I don't think he fully understands. And as a result. You know, Sam tells him this, and he's he's not going to be happy. I think he is firmly he has moved firmly from Jon Snow's side to the side of people people like Alistair Thorne, people who are against Jon Snow, all the people who did not want him to le- to to have this mission of of helping the wildlings. Again, that scene was done brilliantly. You know, if if it, if we come back next week and and Ollie is on. Sam and John's side, then I, I, you know, looking at that scene, I understand it, it works perfectly as well. I thought it was very well. I thought that young man who, who plays Ollie did a very good job acting in that scene because it is pulled off very, very well done. And the camera angles and, and everything and, and the performance by John Bradley, they, they, they really made it work. It could work either way. It could, it could come, come, come down on either side. But I, I'm with you. I think. We're most likely going to see that he rejected what, um, what what was told to him, what Sam told him. Let's go to Winterfell. Let's let's stop off in Winterfell because there, you know, I, I, the action and the the um, amazing stuff with the White Walkers in this episode was really brilliant and was really great. But this was already my favorite episode of the season before we even got to that. And it was due in part to Tyrion and Danny, and we'll get to that in a moment as well. But it was also due in part to this really, really good scene between Sansa and Theon. And I I feel confident in saying 
it was Theon. It wasn't Reek. It was Theon. Would you agree that in this moment, he went back to being Theon for just a moment, and he showed just enough remorse, and he showed just, a, and he showed some remorse for all of the shitty things he has done up to this point. Yeah, we we really are starting to get Theon Greyjoy back into back into the fold, not necessarily in a way that we have forgiven. Mm-hmm. What he's done, but at least that title, that name now is becoming so symbolic of who he was and what he is. You know, the that title of the Reek, which was first coined by Ramsay at the end of season three, has been has become synonymous with the submissive and brainwashed and completely you know, petrified uh Fionn Greyjoy. You know, he's he is now just a subservient to Ramsay Bolton and mm-hmm. won't do anything to challenge his master. He's a slave. But Theon Greyjoy, that's representative of an individual who's part of a still powerful, reasonably powerful house, or at least a, um, maybe not a word respectable, but certainly um, a, noble a family. with a lot of presence. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, so I think that yeah, part of the Greyjoy house line. And so those two names now, Fionn Reek, are becoming so symbolic, as I said, of what the character as a personality represents. Now, in that scene, it was so well executed, the way that Alfie Allen played Fionn Greyjoy there, where he's, he's slowly and steadily revealing to Sansa what's happened to him. You know, that piece by piece he's been, um, you know, taken down a notch. Obviously, there was also metaphorical and literal oh, yeah. um, re- uh, reasons underpinning that. And then he reveals to Sansa about Rickon and Bran, which, whilst is a. It, most people have looked at how that's huge for Sansa. You know, in the way that, yes, Sansa now learns that um, Bran and Rickon are alive. And it gives her a bit more of a purpose that I think in a way she probably wants to take in a mother mantle role now where she has to protect these children and it's going to incite and, and, and help Sansa get through this torturous experience. However, it, I think that scene and that revelation was also important to Theon Greyjoy. That in a way... Perhaps in the down the line, Sansa may well forgive him, um, and and uh, I think Theon will need that, or, or Reek, whatever you want to term him. He's going to need that recognition. He's going to need that backing, and um, and uh, and he he needs to feel uh, he needs to get rid of this guilt. Really, I I think that's part of it. A lot of it is psychological. Of course, it is. Um, it's not just the physical harm that's happened to him, but it's the psychological torture that's befallen Fionn Greyjoy. And I think he needs someone now to be strong, uh, but someone who he knows well to help him get back on a path which would make him more accepted as an individual. Yeah. But what, what was your reading of the scene there, Dominic? Well, yeah, I, I thought it was, like you said, it was, it was brilliantly executed. Um, to me... You know that revelation for him is a, it's it's a weight off his shoulders. This is a secret that he is, he has been forced to keep, for so long, 
And you have to look at everything that Theon has been through, both as Theon and, you know, in his during his transformation into Reek. You know, he, he was Ned Stark's ward. He ne- never felt he, he quite got the respect he deserved. Um, he, gr- he grew up, like Jon Snow did, sort of in the shadow of Rob Stark. And that's something that we heard a little bit from John about at the beginning of last season that, you know, this, there was this, you know, to grow up in the shadow of this, this man who was supposed to be the next great leader of Winterfell and for all, for all we can tell would have been had things gone a little bit differently. But he, he still, and then, but he betrayed him. So there's, that's another weight he has to carry. And that betrayal ultimately led to Rob's death. So that's another weight he has to carry. Um, all the horrible things that Ramsay did to him, another thing he has to carry. And the secret that, you know, he has to, this is, you know, one of his few, the few good things he can, or few, one of the few, not even good, I would say, because, it's, you know, he still did murder two innocent children. But this is one of the few things that he did that he is being blamed for. And he can't tell anybody that it's not true, that Bran and Rickon are still out there. And he, you know, he can't tell them. He can't tell anyone. So in this moment, he finally tells her, and that's a, sort of a weight off of his shoulder. And it begins, perhaps, to form some kind of new bond between, or not not even bond, but some kind of new connection between Sansa and Theon, because we've we've talked a lot about Theon, and, and you know, is he beyond redemption? Well, I don't know. He's done so many horrible things that it, it would seem impossible for him to have a happy ending. But a happy ending and redemption are not necessarily the same thing. So I, I think this is the first step towards Theon's death, but also potentially the first step towards his redemption. Now, uh, just one more thing about that scene. What do you think it was that Sansa said to Theon or to Reek? Or, or, well, they're one and the same kind of in this moment that finally got him to speak, that finally broke through the, the Reek exterior into, you know, the last little bit of Theon, you know, the, the, that remained inside his mind. What do you think it was? What, what about it? Because that scene, it was pulled off brilliantly. I love the way he goes, he, he opens the door and and Sophie Turner as as Sansa is just sitting there, <laughs> and she's just she's just waiting for him, you know. She's clearly plotted, or she clearly knows that he is one of her last um, hopes, you know. That she knows that she can't do this alone. Everybody needs allies. Um, that's not a slight slight on her character, you know. It's a, if anything, it's a bit of a strength that recognizes that you can't do things on your own. Because when you try to do things on your own, that's when you die. And so in in this moment, she's trying to get through to him. What do you think it was that finally got through to him? I I mean, it's overwhelming guilt and and um, the fact he's so ashamed of what's happened there. And it's, it, it's been consistent throughout. But I think the... The events of season two, what happened with Bran and Rickon, um, 
as was the main catalyst or the main spark which made him spell out what actually happened and science has been constantly on it but she hasn't necessarily pinned in so much about that in such depth um you know she's been trying to say fion you're not reek or fion gray joy um and she's not even just talking about the sacking of winterfell it's more what's happened to the children that's really what drove and pushed um fion i think to reveal and unveil the secret in my mind, yeah, uh, because because Sansa highlights to Theon, you know, they're not just two boys; they're Bran and Rickon. You loved them; they were your family. And again, it's just that shame-ridden nature of it all that has really pushed Reek to enunciate the truth. What did you? What was your reading of that? Yeah, Dominic? yeah, I like what you're saying there. That you know, she's putting all of this pressure on him, and she's she's laying out his crimes all of the reasons why he should help her. And I think, it, it, you know, as, as I was saying a second ago, this is, uh, you know, something he's had to carry, this secret. And, you know, in that moment, you know, he, he obviously has not wanted to see her. This is not something he has wanted to do. You know, he hid from her for the longest time. When she finally saw him earlier this season, he... You know, he confessed it to to Ramsey and expected to be punished. He, you know, he knew that he was not supposed to see her. Um, I think partly because he he may have feared that she would get through to him, and that he would then have to face his fears and go up against Ramsey. And I think that's ultimately what's happened here is that you know he's come face to face with this person from his past who kind of represents all of the horrible things he has done, and because you know all of the horrible things he's done, so much of them relate directly to the Starks and to Winterfell. And so he's faced in, he's in this moment where he has come face to face with, with, you know, the representation of all of the evil he has done. And he is trying to, at the very least show that he, there was one thing that he didn't do, that there's one harm that she thinks he caused to him or, or that she thinks he caused to her that he didn't do. And, that I think is what finally caused Theon to break through, albeit briefly. He does go back to being Reek at the end of the scene. Um, but once Theon has broken through once, you can bet that it's now, you know, Sansa's new goal is to get Theon to break through as often as possible. And, you know, with her, with Sansa, Theon, and perhaps Brienne of Tarth, the three of them, maybe they can. They can cause some damage to the Boltons, another family who have caused incredible, incredible pain to Sansa and the Starks. Uh, Now, you mentioned you had a theory about Brienne of Tarth. Is this a good time to share it? Yeah, I'll I'll be very brief and and swift about it. But obviously now... is Is your theory that she, at the end of this season, she somehow gets jettisoned into space, gets transferred to a galaxy far, far away, puts on a, and puts on a Chrome Trooper outfit change, and changes her name to Captain Phasma? Well, that would be an interesting plot twist, <laughs> wouldn't it? What a twist. <laughs> Sadly, I don't know whether that would happen. But, yeah. you know, we, have got, we have got the fantasy element in the show here. We, who knows what other powers <laughs> the White Walkers have. But I, 
But what I do think on a serious though, in terms of the significance of that scene, I you know, Sans has now learned that Bran and Rickon are alive and she's going to want to protect them. Now Brienne's task was to primarily protect Sansa and Arya mm-hmm. um, as part of her oath to Catelyn Stark. But I think that it wasn't just Sansa and Arya she was supposed to protect. I think it really represented, you know, those two represented children, the children of Catelyn Stark. Mm-hmm. And now, partic- and, and on top of that, we've learned about the significance of a Valyrian sword or a Valyrian weapon. I wouldn't be surprised in the near future to see Brienne of Tarth perhaps go across the wall mm-hmm. to try and find Bran and Rickon yeah. at some at some point. Well, what what would you say to that? I like it. I like it. I, the and, and 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 bestowed by Sansa Stark. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the thing is, is how is Brienne to know though? That's the one thing. Is how is she to know that this Valyrian through steel Sansa will work? Stark. Oh, through Sansa. Well, 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 not the Valyrian steel. The Valyrian steel about about the boys. Yeah, I know. I, I gather that, but uh, about the uh, about the Valyrian steel, perhaps John she Snow. could. Yeah, perhaps she could run into Jon Snow before she before she heads north of the Wall. Well, she'll have to. If she wants to get to the Wall, she'll have to go through the Night's Watch way. Good point. Yeah, it's a good point. Very good point. Yeah. So uh, let's let's uh, let's go south. All right. Yeah. There, there there wasn't too much with the Boltons. Just a little bit of setup for next week. I think. With Ramsay planning some kind of bizarre attack on Stannis with about twenty men, It'll be interesting. It'll be interesting as it, you know. Perhaps the Battle of Winterfell will not happen. Perhaps it will be some kind of smaller skirmish. <laughs> that would be a that would be a bit of a disappointment. Not going to lie, be a, a smidge of a disappointment. Well, in fairness, they talk about the tactics, don't they, the Boltons, about the possibility of this. The siege yeah. of Winterfell, saying that it's it's very impractical for Stannis to do, um, and their aim is just to shut the walls and keep their defensive position and let Stannis's men starve and mutiny, yeah. which actually isn't a bad plan. <laughs> yeah, it, it kind of makes sense. Uh, but let's let's head south to uh, to King's Landing, and and we don't spend much time there this week, uh, but we do see Cersei in prison. Uh, finally getting some form of comeuppance or, or what, whatever you want to say, whatever you want to call it for all of the, uh, all of the things she has done. And, you know, that is, that's the thing about the Lannisters, you know, they were on top for so long and it seemed they were unstoppable. And then now we're starting to see them crumble. We saw Tywin die. Cersei is in jail. Tommen is Tomlin, Tomlin is not being much of a king. Jamie is often in, in Dorne, doing who knows what. And now he's well, captured. Now yeah, it's captured. Yeah, well, something will happen next week. Well, I, I assume um, with with that. But so we're we're really starting to see the 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 falling apart of the Lannisters, and and Cersei is now in the, in this face. In this phase where she will, she is never going to admit to what she did wrong, even though it's the only thing that could save her. What yeah. do you think? Do you think there's a? Do you think there's a happy ending for for Cersei Lannister? Do you think there's a way that she can get out of this? And when I say happy ending, I mean a happy ending for for her by her standards. Is there a way that she can get out of this, or is this truly the downfall of her? 
Because really, even even in prison, she will not take anything. She she's just screaming about barefooted commoners, and she won't take the the, the water or the soup. She's she, she really is 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 still trying to uphold this image that she is better than everyone else. But really, it doesn't seem like she has got anything left. Like it, there doesn't seem to be any weapon left in her arsenal. Is is there a way out for her? Do you think? Well. Kyber mentioned it. Um, confess, yeah. Confess. But will she do that? Would she risk it all? <laughs> um, including, you know, if she did that, um, it would showcase that Tomlin was illegitimate. I mean, there's there's a lot of stake here. And I think, you know, in terms well, Kyber lists the, the crimes down that she's been... Um, well, blamed and and seemingly culpable of committing, which included fornication, incest, and killing King Robert. Yeah. It's quite an interesting one they put at the end there, actually. <laughs> um, so, with that in mind, um, there is a lot of stake, and and particularly you know regicide, all of these um, crimes. Which, of course, to the High Sparrow and the Militant, they, these crimes are quantified in a different manner to that of the Crown. Now, Kyber mentioned that as much, and I don't really want to use the quote because you may have it. Have you, have you got a quote, quote from this scene? From this scene? No. No, go for it. No, okay, all right. Well, when he says something akin to uh, belief is the death of reason, mm. um, you know, and the idea of, of what one believes will outweigh what evidence and proof there actually is to back that statement, back that hypothesis. And um, I think that the, the highest sparrow and, and the other judges at this trial will um, certainly take belief into higher accord than evidence. So I, I thought that seems very interesting, actually, in terms of Cersei, we get to see what her living conditions are like and how she can, if she really wanted to, get out of it. Um, but we also learned some interesting facts behind the scenes, including that Kevin Lannister has now been named Hand to the King mm-hmm. on the orders of Grand Maester Pycelle, and that um, Kyber's project continues, whatever that would entail. But yeah, Dominic, first of all, as you said, as you, you asked me that question of Cersei, you know, do you do you think that Cersei will be able to get out of this? And also, what did you make of the revelations there of Kevin as well as uh, Kyber's continual project? Well, I, I think this is this is the end for Cersei Lannister. I think this is this is as low as, as well, I, I guess she's probably. I don't know how much lower she can fall, other than death, um, and and I I don't expect. I I don't think there's a there's a way out for her. I think she's played the game for too long and she you know, she grew this web of lies and she just got caught in it. That she trusted too many people that none of them would turn on her and and Lancel Lannister. Really, the guy who knew everything. He he would be the one who would know about the poisoning of King Robert. He was there. He was giving him the wine, you know, and then to 
to add on to it, their relationship that they had, their physical relationship, I guess I should say. And so he really, he knew where all the skeletons were hidden, where the bodies were buried. And the fact that he's the one that, that sold her out is is kind of fitting because he's the one that I think most people had written off. I didn't expect anything from this guy. I I didn't. You know, I didn't recognize him when he showed up this season. Now, granted, I don't think you were necessarily supposed to recognize him, but he was never... He was never the character you expected would be the one to bring her down. You thought it would be Littlefinger or Lady Olena or one of the Starks at some point or, or one of the Boltons or who knows, maybe even Tyrion. But it was it was Lancel Lannister. And I, I think that was such a it was such a subtle thing. But when you think about it, it makes perfect sense that he would be the one to take take her down. Uh I don't know if you have much to say about what went down in, in Bravos this week. Again, it seems to be set up for uh, for the for a future episode, whether it's next week or the week after, or both. But we're starting to see Arya, you know, going through more of this uh, training with the faceless man to uh, you know take on a new identity, if not a new face. Uh, any any thoughts on what we saw there this week? Uh, not particularly. I think the Arya storyline, again, there's a lot of enigma surrounding it. And it's hard. I think, in a way, our viewing of those scenes is quite similar to Arya's. We're not really sure of necessarily what's true and what's false, what's real, what's not. I mean, even then, I, I even start questioning myself that the merchant we see, Arya... So selling those shell uh, those oysters to, um, you know, is is he Jacques and Hagar? I mean, because <laughs> that, this is a now test. That would surely. be an interesting twist. Because I, I, I you know, Jacques and Hagar is the one who's telling Arya when you know when to turn left, when to turn right, and I, I I'm wondering, where, you know, how on earth is he able to believe or discern what? events are taking place if he's not there so that could be that that's one of the ideas i have but maybe it's not true maybe i'm reading too much into it but i think that we're seeing still aria on a trial basis here she hasn't she's accomplished a lot and she's propelled herself to being into a position which is beyond what's expected of her but I do think that she's still part of this. She, you know, she's still being schooled, being taught what on how to become a faceless man. But what did you make of that scene or yeah. the Aria yeah. scenes? I, th- I think that's that's really an interesting way to look at it. That you know we're watching these scenes and we don't fully understand what's going on, but neither does she. That there's this sort of this potential that something is going on that we don't we don't fully know about and that what is going to come out of this is going to be hugely impactful for her character and and for her story because right now her story seems to be existing outside of everything else i mean for for the longest time that was sort of that was sort of danny's story that it seemed to exist and and to a certain extent john snow but that that 
you know, there was all of this massive political maneuvering with all of the, the families. And, you know, then there was John at the wall and, and Danny in, in, a, in wherever she was, Slaver's Bay, Marie and with Cal Drogo. And, and they were these kind of these kind of separate stories that were just kind of off. And then this season, everything is really coming together. And except Arya's story, Arya's story has completely sort of skewed off into this, this other direction. And it, it'll be really interesting to see how it's brought back in. Because, you know, there's no point in, in just following a character for the sake of following the character unless it's going to tie back into the story. If if Arya just becomes a faceless man and doesn't do anything, then what was the point? So I, I, what I'm really interested in is seeing is how she, if she does become a faceless man, how she then utilizes that into the future, into the future of this larger story. Or if she doesn't, how she takes what she learned and applies it to what's going on either in King's Landing or in Winterfell or beyond the wall, as we, as we discussed earlier, which is now that's the end game. That's the, the real threat. Uh, but of course the other big thing that would probably be the, the biggest moment of the episode, if it weren't for the massacre, as we're now calling it at hard home, which was the first real conversations between Tyrion Lannister and Daenerys Targaryen. Just quit, just right off the bat, what did you think of seeing these two uh, legendary characters interacting with each other? About time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It was, uh, you know, they, they seemed to play off each other very well uh, right off the bat. And, you know, they, it didn't quite have the same snappiness as, as they have with characters that they've known for a long time. But again, then again, you have to remember... These are just the first meetings, and and I think the more time we spend with these characters, the more we will come to understand, or the more they will sort of come to understand each other, and we'll get some more snappy dialogue, some more once the once they're closer and once they're more used to each other. Because in this this time in this some of these scenes, they did feel a bit stilted, a bit formal. Um, it, but I expect it will become more relaxed. But it was still great. It was still really, really interesting. And I, I like that we're finally seeing somebody challenging Danny. And I don't mean that in sort of a physical sense that like she's, you know, challenging her rule or anything like that. But challenging her ideas. You know, she's always been all about reclaiming the Iron Throne. And Tyrion's the first person to say, Why? And then, you know, she's always been about, well, just get to Westeros and figure it out from there. Tyrion's the one who's saying, yeah, you can't really do that. And I think it, it really brings this really interesting relationship where Tyrion, you know, he fully understands everything that she wants. And he, under, and he understands how to get it better than she does. And ultimately, the meeting between these two characters may turn out to be just as impactful in a way, in a diff in a in a different sort of way from a certain point of view, um, from what or just as impactful as the stuff we saw at Hardhome. You know, that it could be this this meeting, which again, compared to the massacre, felt very low key, felt very tame. But it I I fully believe this is crucially important to solving or finishing the story that these two characters had to meet in order for the, you know, for the story 
or for the story to progress, for her to get what she wants or to die trying. And, you know, it, it seemed to me that this is this moment here is going to we're going to look back on it and we already look at it as a huge moment in the show, but I think we're going to continue to look back on it as a, it's just another sort of turning point. This whole episode is full of turning points where the show doesn't seem like it can really be the same after that. Uh, Do you see what I'm saying? Do I make any sense there? Yeah, I, I see where you're coming from. There's the scenes at the beginning I thought were, particularly important as you said not just for um the immediate future but the the long-term future um Daenerys recognizing that the Iron Throne is not all as important or the most important um thing to be focusing on in in terms of having to acquire a seat there Mm -hmm. that you know the idea, as Tyrion has put in it, of in a in a way revolution. Um, you know, ending and abolishing slavery, for example. This is completely new to the society of Marine. Uh, you know, look to put push these ideas um, and promulgate them ac- across Westeros. Uh, before we go into too much about that, though, I'll ask you this question. Um, which is linked on to those two scenes. What what did you make of that beginning scene with Jorah, Tyrion, and Daenerys there in the throne room, and 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 poor Jorah's exiled once again? <laughs> yeah, it's it's an it's it's an interesting uh, scene, and uh, you know the the Tyrion quote there, you know. Uh, a, a leader who uh, you know kills those who are devoted to them doesn't won't really inspire devotion. Um, r- really spoke, you know, showed that he understands that you know Jorah Mormont could be a great ally to them. But by that same token, you can't really trust the guy. I mean, he is desperately trying to win back their trust, but he did betray her. I mean, you can't really forget that. He did sell men into slavery. He has this horrible past. And I don't know if, you know, we, we talked a little bit about redemption for Theon. I, I, you wonder, is there a way that, that Jorah could ever redeem himself in her eyes? You know, there's at the end of the episode, Jorah goes to, to you know, rejoin the, the fighting pits. I don't, you know, it, it seems like he's going about this the wrong way. It seems like he should be filling some different role. What that is, I don't know. But it it doesn't. It feels like he's going about it wrong. Uh, but uh, but I want to get your take on that. What do, what do you think? Well, Jora, his days are numbered. I, yeah. Well, we know he's got it. the grayscale. <laughs> well, the grayscale, and I I think at the moment the. The grayscale is important because it's also a driving factor now in his aspirations and intentions. Why Jorah is so prepared to give himself up to the slave owner once again, um, you know, to be given the opportunity to show his worth in the fighting pits. I think a part of that was inspired by when he walked out of that marine temple. He looks down and sees that grayscale there. 
and yeah. he knows that time is running out and he needs to prove himself and he needs to prove himself now. So this is Jorah's last chance. Um, it's going to be uh, partly based on previews, but also based on my own view. I think that Jorah will once again take part in the fighting pits. What will happen there is is up for debate. I'm, I'm just not sure it's going to meet with a happy ending. And it's no. so, you feel so sorry for him in a way, because although he has betrayed her since then, he's done everything he could to be yeah. as devoted as anybody else. Oh, yeah. And when Tyrion openly states in front of both that he, he thinks draws in love with her, you just see the reaction of both of the act, you know, of Amelia Clark and, and, Ian, and, um, Ian Glenn. oh, is it Ian Glenn? I think it's it? Ian Glenn. Yeah. Ian Glenn who plays, um, who plays Jorah and both of them, uh, you know, Jorah's got tears down his eyes. I mean, it's such an emotional idea. Uh, you know, and, and, and as an audience, uh, or at least as a member of the audience, I feel sympathy towards his character for oh, that. But, sadly his chance has been lost that's that's what i take from that scene anyway yeah yeah no he's kind of kind of like theon it seems his only route to redemption at least in her eyes i don't know if he needs to redeem himself in the audience's eyes i think the audience is very much on his side and it's one of those times where the audience and the character are kind of opposed in that you know the audience is sympathetic to him where danny is not uh but you know again much like theon his route to redemption seems to be some kind of sacrifice it seems to be death and yeah you're, you're right i I think you know he for one he's got the grayscale so he knows his days are numbered so he, he's going to try and find some way to do one last heroic thing for her what that is We'll find out next week or the week after for that matter. Uh, but yeah, only two episodes left. Only two episodes left. You know, in, in, in what has been a, a mixed season. A mixed season at times. But uh, it'll be interesting to look back on how this season ends and how everything played out. Uh, but is there anything else you want to bring up from this episode? No, I think we've covered it all pretty much very well. Alright, well let let's move on to our favorite quotes from the episode this is the time when we take a take a moment to uh, to uh, single out some of the great writing on this show and there is some great writing and and share some of the great dialogue by some of the great characters it's a great it's a great time uh but uh, so i'll throw it over to you first uh what's what's one of your favorite quotes from hard home um in terms of i i We've kind of said it already, but when Fion reveals to Sansa about the boys, um, and he and he says something akin to, um, it, you know, there were two farm boys, and I, I just think the way the music is used in that particular moment, the facial reactions to the two characters, is it's more of a moment, I guess, but rather than the quote itself per se, but. Um, I think that particular moment stood out to me as being quite an impactful one. Um, but I'll throw it over to you. 
for your more of a quote rather than a moment, I guess. Sure. Yeah. So for me, one of the great quotes is when um, when Tyrion first comes face to face with with Danny, and she's sort of saying, "Why should I ever trust a Lannister?" And Tyrion, you know, lays out the fact that he killed his mother when she gave birth to him, and just recently he murdered Tywin, his father. And he says, I am the greatest Lannister killer of our time. And I thought that was a, a, a very, uh, very Tyrion line and, and very well delivered by, by Peter Dinklage in a, in, in a tense scene to inject a little bit of humor like that in a way that didn't feel forced was, uh, was very well done by the writers and the actors. Uh, but any, any other ones you want to bring up? I do quite like the scene with the wildlings and then, Night's Watch, when Jon Snow is imploring the wildlings to join with uh, the Night's Watch, and he says something akin to, yeah, you know, we may not all survive this, but at least let's give those fuckers a fight. Yeah. <laughs> so it's uh, sort of a band of brothers moment. They're trying to get everyone on side and um, being blunt about it, sometimes the best way to go about it, so... Um, yeah, that was definitely one of my favorite ones. And um, what about yourself? Yeah, one more. It's uh, it's uh, another another uh, interaction between uh, Danny and Tyrion, and it's it's from the trailer. Everybody knows this, but it's still a phenomenal bit of writing when when Danny sort of goes through all of the various different houses and says, you know, they're just spokes on a wheel. Uh, this one's on top, then the other, spinning on and on, crushing crushing the people. And you know Tyrion sort of goes, oh, that's it's a nice idea to you know to stop the wheel. And she says, I don't I don't want to stop the wheel. I'm going to break the wheel. And I thought that's a, it's a, it's a very powerful bit of imagery that she evokes with that line of dialogue. Uh, any others you want to bring up, or sh- or shall we wrap things up? I think we'll wrap things up now, mate. All right. So that will do it for what has been really one of the best episodes of the series, as we've talked about. Before before we go, I'll throw it back over to you, Kieran, for your final thoughts and score it a 10 for Hard Home. Final thoughts. A fantastically well-executed episode, choreographical-wise. The fights and the visuals were amazing. But the story was great as well, and we see the plot moving forward. Um, I'm looking to see now resolutions to these stories in the next two episodes, particularly what's going to happen with Cersei and the High Militant, what's going to happen with the narrative storyline with Jorah, Tyrion, and, of course, what is going to take place up in the north We've now seen the ramifications of the massacre. Well, we've seen the massacre of the White Walkers. We want to see the ramifications of that. And we also want to discover what happens between Stannis, the Boltons, and Ramsay's little boy there. 20 good men. What is his plan going to entail, Mr. Bolton? So we're going to find out, hopefully, some of those answers in the next episode. But overall, I'm going to give this one a 9 out of 10. As you said, one of the best of the season. And Dominic, what is your final review and score of this episode? Well, like I said, this is uh, hands down the best episode of the season and up there for one of the best of the series. Uh, fantastic acting and writing all around. Great music. Uh, every great choreo- choreography you know we, we talked earlier in this season some of the choreography specifically the 
whole uh, water garden, sand snakes versus Jamie and Braun sequence wasn't all the best, but it, it was all made up for with this just phenomenal, phenomenal action sequence uh, in the north. So much good stuff, and like you said, so much more setup for things that are still yet to play out. But like I said, this is a game-changing episode. Uh, not only have we seen the meeting between two greats who will likely become a, a real force to be reckoned with uh, in the form of Tyrion and Daenerys Targaryen, but also the real threat that is facing Westeros has finally emerged. It's finally shown itself and in that amazing, amazing battle. And there wasn't a scene I disliked. Everything that it's, that was set up, I am intrigued to see where it goes next. And uh, and, and absolutely, it was it was re- a really great to see a great episode of Game of Thrones again because it, it it had been a while. There had been a couple episodes this season that were just kind of middling. They weren't bad, but they weren't exactly good either. And this was a great episode. And for that reason, I will give it a 10 out of 10. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I went there. 10 out of 10 for Hard Home. All right, before we go, I want to tell you about some things. Karen, I'll throw it over to you. Is uh, is Expression FM still going, or now that you've won all of your awards, are you done for the year? Yeah, we'll call it a day on that. No, I... <laughs> Quit while you're ahead. Um, Always leave them wanting yeah, more. Exactly. Uh, in terms of Expression FM, we're, we're still keep it as busy as we can do difficulty is though term time is coming to an end officially the term ends next week for the summer break so um the main thing with regards to expression is rather my show which takes place on monday my finale from 6 to 7 p.m monday the 8th of june and Duggan's dance anthems covering all things related to your famous dance classics throughout the 90s, noughties, and the last five years. So that, that, what do you call this decade? The teens? Uh, who knows? But we'll find out towards the end of the decade, I imagine. And so I'm just that's... calling it the decade of Star Wars. So <laughs> that doesn't really help you, though. Uh, well, I'll take that. <laughs> um, so. Yeah, that's that's kind of it. Douglas Dance Anthems every Monday, 6 or 7 p.m. GMT time. And you can listen to that show on our website, www.expression.fm. You can also get in contact via social media, which includes Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at ExpressionFM. And Facebook, our Facebook page is www.facebook.com slash ExpressionFM. And I'll throw it over to you, Dominic, to disclose your own podcast. Yeah, so of course I want to tell you all about the Star Wars Underworld podcast. We record live Thursday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern on channel 1138.com and then release the episodes on Friday on Friday morning on iTunes so you can listen on your way to work, while you work, on your way home from work or over the weekend, whenever you want. That is the brilliance of podcasting. Uh, so you can ch- find that over at StarWarsUnderworld.com or just by searching for Star Wars Underworld in iTunes. We got uh, we had a big show last week talking all about Episode Seven spoilers. Yeah, it was uh, it was a really interesting show, um, not one for the faint-hearted. But uh, this week we'll be uh, we'll be back uh, with who knows what. There's, there can always be breaking news. That's the fun thing about about stuff like Star Wars and Game of Thrones and stuff. There's always something new coming and uh winter's coming well i, I guess <laughs> uh but yeah it's a 
So definitely check that out. Thursday nights, 9 p.m. Fridays on iTunes. So search, do that. Speaking of iTunes, you can subscribe to this show on iTunes. Just search for The Watchers of Westeros. And while you're there, if you like the show, uh, please leave us an iTunes review. We would really appreciate that. Helps us out a great deal. Uh, also, you can like the show on Facebook. Just search for The Watchers of Westeros on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Watcher Westeros. That way, you will never miss an episode. Uh, you can follow me personally on Twitter at DominicJ25. You can follow Kieran at CDuggan6. And uh, I think that's it. We'll be back next week to talk about the ninth episode of Season 5. We're really at the end here, guys. We, we're, uh, we're, the end is in sight. We'll be talking about But, of course, Season 5, Episode 9, The Dance of Dragons. Something big. Something tells me something big is going to happen. And if you've seen the previews, uh, looks like it's uh, looks like it's going to be a tense a tense episode but looks like it'll be it'll pick up where this one left off and hopefully carry that momentum forward right through the end of the season and then then the off season and then we'll, we'll have to figure out figure out how does what do we do with our lives until the show comes back it'll be but uh don't have to worry about that just yet like i said two episodes ago hopefully uh hopefully we'll be able to record uh at this time again next week and we'll get these episodes out to you so you can listen on thursday or friday or whenever as long as it's before the next episode because that was that was kind of weird for a while there but you do what you gotta do all right that's enough rambling from me thank you everybody for, li- for listening we'll be back next week for the watchers of westeros i'm dominic and i'm kieran and remember politics doesn't necessarily mean killing i think that's the quote Sorry, remember that killing and politics are not necessarily the same thing. That's the right quote. Stupid me for writing it down wrong. <laughs>